Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Anyway, we are talking, we are in the middle of a series, actually not in the middle of it, wrapping it up today, I think, although we'll see how this works out. I kind of want to take this at least one more Sunday to talk about another phase of this. But I started a series three weeks ago on miracles. And just a quick refresher, I know I've said this every week, but there's probably one or two people haven't been here uh, part of this, I mean, regular attenders who maybe haven't been here for any of this series yet. This is something that uh, the kind of the genesis of it was a Wednesday night message when uh, made this declaration that this, this year we were just going to take a little more aggressive, uh, purposeful posture toward believing for and expecting to see miracles in our midst. This is a church that doctrinally has always embraced the miraculous, the gifts of the Spirit, but we don't get points, we don't get rewarded for believing the right thing. We get rewarded for doing the right thing. We need to act on these beliefs, and therefore, if miracles are for us, we should expect to see them in our midst and after, uh, after that service, the very next day, we get a call from Durant's here who said they are really moving strongly and, and almost exclusively in the ministry of miraculous healings. This is how God has been using them, used them has, has used them. Of course, they ministered with Brother Hagen for years, traveled with him, uh, and they've done... Uh, uh, they've always been open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their ministry. But he says the things they've seen in the last two years have been notable miracles. I mean blind eyes open, deaf ears opened, and uh, uh, people rising up out of wheelchairs. And it's like, you know, we're not putting our faith. I want to make that clear. We are not putting our faith in the miraculous ministry of Kevin and Annie Durant. It's just that God has gifted them and apparently uh, has uh, blessed them particularly in this ministry, at least during this season. And the fact that that offer, that call came the day after that service caused me to consider having them in. I didn't say yes right away, but you know, three weeks later, we've got Bob Yandian coming in. He he had been on the schedule for months already. So my inclination, had it not been for that Wednesday service, would have been to say no. But I prayed about it, and I believe God has directed us to have them in. And so rather than spend three weeks talking about something else and then just seeing what they'll do, if they are planning on coming here and ministering in miraculous healings, is there something we can do to cultivate an atmosphere to receive that? Is there something we can do to maximize our time with that ministry? And I believe there is. So we started talking about miracles. And the first uh, three weeks ago, we looked at miracles in the Old Testament, Last week, we looked at the miracles of Jesus. Today, we will look at the miracles in the church age. And the, uh, one of the primary aims of this series is to counter the claim that has been made by many, including some of my favorite ministers, uh, that the primary or even the sole role or purpose of the miracle in the Old and New Testament is as an apologetic to prove that it is God doing this, to prove that Jesus is God, and in the case of the church age, to authenticate the apostolic authority of the church founders. These are the ones who God entrusted to start churches, to appoint elders, and to um, minister 
and establish New Testament doctrine. And therefore, it was important that people receive it and and, uh, receive these men. And therefore, God anointed the apostles to perform miracles to authenticate, put his stamp of approval on their authority. Now, and again, I said all that. Don't remember, don't forget what I said at the beginning. Uh, point of this message is to counter that. I don't believe that's the, the, the case scripturally. Now, as we saw, the miracles of the, uh, miracles of the Old Testament, did they serve as an apologetic? Did they serve as, authentic, as authentication? They did. But primarily what we see is God simply acting supernaturally on behalf of his people. Almost exclusively in the lives of God's people Israel uh, and for their benefit. But often these miracles were private. Uh, vast majority, there was little or no evangelistic or apologetic effect. It was simply God acting on behalf of people who already believed in him. There were exceptions to that. But by and large, that was the case. The miracles of Jesus certainly served to authenticate his ministry and his message. But primarily, again, Jesus did miracles to meet needs. The most common miracle he did? Healing, right? Everywhere he went, he healed, and he healed multitudes. And he says he was moved with compassion, and he, was, and he healed them all. And there are two main things that emerged from this. And one was that the faith of the, of the recipient of the miracle was often mentioned, often a significant part of the equation. Jesus, we don't just observe this. Jesus says it clearly. Your faith has made you whole. Be it unto you according to not my power, not my identity, but be it done according to your faith. And the other one, this is just as significant, is that Jesus, the only times we see him refusing to do a miracle is when people say, prove you are him and do a miracle. Show us a sign. Now, if the primary role of the miracle in Jesus' ministry was to authenticate his messiahship, to confirm his messiahship, doesn't it seem odd that he refused to do a miracle when they said, hey, prove you're the messiah, do a miracle? That's when he said, nope, not going to do one. He did it to meet needs. He did it to bless people. Uh, and sort of, it's kind of a crass way of putting it, but the, the, the sign, the significance of the, of, of the um, authentication or the apologetic side of the miraculous was almost a side effect of everything else he did miraculously. Now today, again, we're going to look at the miracles that took place and continue to take place after the ascension of Jesus and after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is important because, again, the cessationists, those who are believers in Christ, who I believe are genuinely saved, but they take the position that uh, miracles ceased essentially after the first generation of Christians passed on. Their, their position is really, at the, at the most severe level, is that only apostles were commissioned to do miracles. And again, in order to authenticate their ministry and uh, to establish New Testament doctrine, the appointing of elders and pastors, exercising authority and all this. But remember, what we're trying to do is not just make a case for something else, but looking for something that we can do to foster and cultivate an atmosphere for miracles in our midst. So there's something we can see uh, in these scriptures. And I, of course, I believe there, there is. The second position is what, though, I would call semi-cessationism. And that is that God, these are people who believe in miracles, and that God can and does do miracles from time to time. 
And it's even okay to ask him to do one, but that it's not okay to expect them. They see any expression of an expectation of a miracle as us or as people demanding that God do something, ordering God around. In other words, in other words, we become God's God. If you are expecting God, rather than just simply saying, ask, Lord, it's up to you, and I'll receive your yes or no. If you're saying, I know that you have already declared you're going to do this, therefore I expect to see it, and then we start speaking to the problem or something crazy like that, then we're ordering God around. That's not it at all. We'll see that. But their, their position is that God can do this uh, and that our role then as the believer, even if we ask for a miracle, the highest expression of our faith is simply to accept whatever outcome comes out and trust God. It's a sort of a passive faith. So we're going to look at two things today. Number one, did anybody but apostles perform miracles after the ministry of Jesus? And two, much more importantly, what does the Bible say about it? just beyond the accounts of miracles. In other words, we're going to look at the miracles, but is there anything doctrinally in the New Testament after the ministry of Jesus, or even in the ministry of Jesus, that it simply says about uh, the miraculous ministry and about what what our role in that is? Uh, So let's read this first in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This, of course, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak his own language. Now, they began to speak with other tongues. And uh, where it says here, you know, there's a crowd. This is, uh, you've got, for the Feast of Pentecost, you had Jews from all over the world. There were devout men who had come to Jerusalem for the feast. And it said they gathered when they heard the sound. Now, I think, I don't think they gathered because they heard the sound of tongues. I think they gathered because they heard the sound of the rushing mighty wind. Uh, I, I pictured this as the sound of an explosion. Maybe, maybe not a boom, but I'll, you know, if I, I'm not going to do it. They get mad when I do crazy things with the microphone. But we used to do that all the time. I told this story at the Methodist church when I spoke for the Thanksgiving service. I used to sneak in there and turn on the microphone. And then we'd get on there and make jet noises and bomb noises just by putting the microphone in our mouth. We used to do that on the microphone at IGA after everybody was gone on the intercom system. Hey, anybody ever do silly stuff like that? Three. Three of us used to do silly stuff like that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Uh, anyway, they hear this noise of a rushing mighty wind and like, what is this? They gathered to where that is. And when they get there, then they were confused because when they get to the, to the source of this noise, then they see these people, uh, uttering praises to God and they know it's like, yeah, these guys are all Galileans. They, we, uh, they're all locals. And that I'm hearing them speak my language. What's happening? Some were confused, some were genuinely curious, some, some were uh, ridiculing them, accusing them of being drunk. Uh, but there was this response, there was this gathering. And uh, what happened is uh, once they had that crowd there, they stopped speaking in tongues. And by, by the way, 
this idea, and most of you know this, I just want to make this official. The people say, well, the sea, you had all these people there who spoke different languages. And the reason God poured out this gift of tongues at this moment was so they could all hear the gospel in their language. It, clear, it doesn't say they were preaching the gospel. It says they were praising God. They heard the praises of God. And then when the crowd was gathered, Peter addressed the crowd. And it was an okay altar call at the end of that message. Like 3,000 people got saved. Church started growing fast. So here's a miracle right there. Uh, and I'm gonna, we're going to look at several, and I'm going to refer to several, and this is still very much a partial account of the miracles in the book of Acts and the New Testament at large. In, uh, in Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John, healed, very famous healing of the man at the gate of the temple. Remember, he was a lame man, and he's there begging alms, and Peter and John say, look at me, or Peter says, look at me. And he says he expected to receive something. He probably expected to receive money. But Peter said, I'm going to give you, we don't have gold, we don't have silver, but I'm going to give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he didn't struggle to his feet. He went walking and leaping and praising God. And then he clung to them, walked into the temple with them. Uh, this was a... Uh, they turned around, and the people were astonished. They're like, oh, how did you do this? And they made it very clear, we didn't do this. Jesus did this. And this was a blessing for the man, and it was certainly a testimony or an apologetic for the crowd. Remember, it's not my position that miracles don't serve as an apologetic. It's my position, I believe the biblical position, that the, the role of miracles is not primarily an apologetic. Uh, we also have the miraculous account. This is not one we typically believe for, but it's certainly a miraculous uh, occurrence of Ananias and Sapphira, some early disciples. Uh, we, we, hear, we, we read that uh, they were so in agreement and they were so involved in each other's lives that those who had a lot of stuff, a lot of property, were, would, uh, would sell it. And very often they would sell it and they would distribute to those who had less. This was not, by the way, this wasn't communism. This wasn't socialism. This was the church loving each other, okay? Just, you know, you're going to be known by, by your love one for another, as Jesus said. Uh, and then Ananias and Sapphira, they had a piece of property. They sold it for a certain amount, and they came and delivered it to the disciples, which was great. But for some reason... I don't know how much it was. It doesn't say. But they sold it. Let's just say they, they sold it for $20,000. And then they bring $10,000 to the apostles and said, we just sold this land for $10,000 and we want to give it to the church. All of it. And Peter immediately knew that they were lying. That Ananias was, was, was lying. And the Holy Spirit, he says, you haven't lied to men. You, why, why, is, why, is the Holy, why, why is the devil, has Satan filled your heart to lie uh, to the Holy Spirit? You've not, you're not lying to man, you're lying to God. And remember, God didn't strike, he had, he's so, Ananias is struck dead. Then his wife comes in, tells the exact same lie. He gives her a chance. Did you sell the land for $10,000? Yeah. Here come the people that just carried the body of your husband out. They're going to carry you out too. Strikes her dead. Now, this seems really harsh, right? Definitely a miraculous thing. Again, not something we're believing. I'm going to God strike down every liar in this room. Everybody told a lie this week. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. There, it was, uh, number one, it's a great scripture 
When people want to talk about, well, the Holy Spirit isn't God, it's just this impersonal force. When Peter just said, if you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God, right? Uh, And it certainly wasn't about, well, if you don't give everything to the church, then you're flirting with the possibility that God will strike you dead. No, because again, he says clearly, when it was yours, it was yours to do whatever you wanted with. You could sell it and give us half. You could not sell it at all. But the problem is you lied. You did this to make yourself look good. Now, again, have I ever done anything to make myself look good? Yeah. Have you? Probably. Have we misrepresented ourselves even a little bit? Probably. You know, you know that's not the way you look. That picture you looked up, you posted on Facebook. You know that wasn't candid. You know you posed. But this was the early, early church. There were some things that had to be established. And respect for the Holy Spirit was certainly at the top of that list. So they could not let those things go. And it did. It spread this fear and reverence among the believers. Let them know they needed to take this seriously. Anyway, I didn't need to spend so much time on Ananias and Sapphira. We got a lot more to get through. Uh, In Acts chapter 5, you can go ahead and turn there if you want. Acts chapter 5. Uh, beginning in verse 12, Acts 5, 12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Hear that? Many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This uh, is a little bit of a departure here, because this isn't just an isolated deal. This is starting to look an awful lot like the ministry of Jesus. Remember? Because this is, uh, it is... Now, I agree. This is still the apostles that God is working through. We'll we'll move beyond that in a little bit. But this is important because whereas uh, with Peter and John walking into the temple, right by the gate, here's the lame man, says they looked at him, they fixed his gaze and told him, single out this one guy, tell him, rise up and walk. And he does. Name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Then... But in this verse we just read, this passage, they start bringing people to the apostles, not just from in Jerusalem, but from surrounding cities. Why? This was an expression of faith. Do you remember that even when we read about Jesus' miracles, we do have specific moments where Jesus looks at an individual and say, it's your faith that made you whole. Be unto you according to your faith. But it is a mass expression of faith that the multitudes came to him for healing in the first place. Why did they come? Because they were convinced they would be healed. Same thing happening here. We're seeing this faith element in the multitudes that came, not just to Jesus, but to the apostles. Now, in Acts chapter 6, we see the event that's commonly referred to as the choosing of the first deacons. In Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Acts 6, 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint among, uh, or sorry, against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, these are the Greek converts. And uh, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Not Greek converts, but those who were the, uh, the Greek culture there. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned 
the multitude of of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. There's a lot wrapped up in that passage that we're not going to look at. We're going to move on to the miraculous. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and five other dudes, a proselyte, one of them a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Then, next verse, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Did anybody but apostles do miracles in the New Testament? Starting right here is Stephen. Stephen is not an apostle. Stephen's just a disciple, and there were a great number of disciples. But disciples, were, these were the Christ followers, thousands of them by this point. And here's Stephen, who's chosen to what? Let's, uh, let's pick out uh, a, a handful of guys and confer apostolic authority on them? No. We want faithful men who can serve tables. We're going to help all this in addition to the word, in addition to the doctrine. We want to, we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Yes, there are people with needs. They need healed. They need miracles. But they also need food. And, and all this money, you've got all the rich Christians coming in saying, here, we want to help. Here's, uh, we sold this property. Here's the money, or here's half the money. Here's some of it. What, do what you can do to help those less fortunate. And so the, the apostles, whose job it was to really break the bread of the word and establish this doctrine, said, we really need to devote ourselves full time to this, but we don't want to neglect the widows, the orphans, the poor. So let's pick good, faithful, spirit-filled men to take this part of the ministry over. So they laid hands on them, and so they did this. But what else did they do? Miracles, signs, and wonders, starting here with Stephen. And uh, then, as you know, it doesn't, uh, we, we don't get a, I don't see scripture revealing how long Stephen's ministry lasted. <laughs> he served tables, he did miracles, signs, and wonders, and he preached an awesome sermon and didn't have the altar call that Peter had. Uh, instead, they stoned him to death, he became the first martyr. Uh, Then in Acts chapter 8, we see Philip. Now, there was an apostle named Philip. This is not him. This is the Philip that we just saw along with Stephen being chosen as a deacon or a server, right? Philip uh, goes down to Samaria, and we can read in chapter 8 beginning in verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Now, one of the people was Simon the sorcerer. He was converted and baptized because of Philip's miraculous ministry. Or was he? Let's read it in uh, verse 9. Acts 8 Picking it up in verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But 
when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, the way I read this is he believed because of Philip's teaching and preaching. And he was converted, and he was baptized, and he continued following Philip as he preached, and then was amazed as he saw the signs and healings that Philip did. It wasn't that he was saved because he was amazed. He got to be amazed once he got saved. Philip then preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember this story probably? Don't have time to read it. There's too many other things we need to look at. The eunuch believed. The eunuch was baptized. And then something miraculous happened. It would have been something, wouldn't it, if the Ethiopian eunuch had been standing in his chariot, reading the scriptures, and then Philip materialized, teleported right into his chariot. But he didn't. He walked. He looks up to the guy and says, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading Isaiah. Do you understand what it means? Now I need somebody to teach me. So Philip climbs into the chariot with him and shows, preaches Christ from the scriptures. The Ethiopian says, I want to be baptized. There's water. Can we do it? Yeah, absolutely. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Comes up, and then Philip disappears. Philip is translated, transported, teleported, whatever you want to call it. Then he sees this miracle. So was it the miracle that caused the eunuch to be baptized and believe? No. The miracle happened after he believed. Um, 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 um. let's see. So there's a couple of important things. Number one, Stephen and Philip, they were not apostles, and they did not, uh, their miracles did not always precede the uh, belief in the baptism of the people. Often the miracles happened after the people came to faith. It certainly wasn't to establish their apostolic authority because they had none. Quickly, quickly, let's keep moving. Saul was blinded on the road to Damascus, breathing threats against the church on his way to kill or imprison believers. You remember, God knocks him off his horse. He's blind. He goes to a house of a guy named Judas, and, and he's a believer in Damascus. And uh, while he's there, a guy named Ananias, who God spoke to, different Ananias, <laughs> different Judas too, by the way. And a guy named Ananias comes and prays for him, and Saul was saved, and Saul was healed. And it was Ananias, not an apostle, who God worked this miracle through. Here's a great healing miracle healing Paul's blind eyes, Saul who became Paul, and this was done by a guy named Ananias, again, not an apostle. Paul himself, of course, uh, did many miracles. Now I say he did miracles, I know. God did the miracles through him. And he was an apostle. He was different because he met Jesus after the resurrection, but he did meet him. Acts chapter 14, we'll look at a couple of these. Acts chapter 14, this is an important one. Uh, beginning in verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, and he leapt and walked. This is huge because it tells us that Paul was there preaching the gospel. And there was something in the gospel that caused this man who had never walked to have faith for healing. And then Paul speaks, and the man is healed. But certainly faith is involved here. 
Um, and on, uh, on and on with Paul, he raised Eutychus from the dead after he fell out the window. He shook off the viper's bite, right, on Malta. He healed many on Malta, including this guy. In Acts chapter 28, beginning verse 7, it says, In that reason, Acts 28, 7, in that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. Now, he just went in and healed a relative of the most significant person on this island. He had already... You know, they were already being entertained. They already had the attention because of, you know, the people, the natives had seen him shake off this viper. And they, they were already attributing uh, uh, super, supernatural powers to him. And then he does this very public healing ministry. If it's, again, just to establish apostolic authority, if it's just as an apologetic, how many miracles are necessary? What's the heart of the miracle here when it says the rest of those on the island who needed healing, came and were healed. You know, Paul could certainly have said, look, how much of this you got to see? He could have used that and say, are you only going to, are you all just here for a sign or you want to hear the message that God has clearly given me? No, they just came and got healed. Why? Because this is what God does. He heals. Jesus said it. I do that which I see my Father in heaven doing. The miracles of Jesus were his Father's Normal works wrought small and swift, so we might take them in. Now, shifting gears here in uh, Galatians chapter 3. Now, you remember, Galatians, Paul wrote to uh, counter this uh, heresy that had crept in. Galatians were converts to Christianity, but they weren't Jewish converts, they were Gentile converts. And what Paul dealt with, many places he went, but he addresses it most specifically in his letters to the church, or in his letter to the church in Galatia, is that the Judaizers would come in behind him. These are the ones saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's our Messiah. And if you're going to get to him, you have to get to him through the law like we did. Yes, we're glad you're saved, we're glad you believe, we're glad you're baptized, but you skipped the law, you've got to embrace, you've got to embrace circumcision too. This was the big thing. And so Paul is writing to them, saying, I can't believe you're buying this. God already saved you. You should know that you don't have to go backwards and do it this way. What, kind of, what, what else do you need to know? I can't believe that you're being so easily deceived. And here's what he says in Galatians 3, 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now, notice, this is super important. He didn't say, he who worked miracles among you when I was there. He who supplied the Spirit to you and did miracles among you while I was with you, who demonstrated my authority to you. This is not the case he's making. This is present tense. This Spirit, who supply, uh, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works present tense, continues to work miracles among you. There was no uh, apostolic presence there. Their apostolic presence is writing to them from far away. 
This was a, the normal course of events. And this is part of what fueled Paul's incredulity. I can't believe you would think you are lacking something like circumcision when miracles are clearly continuing to take place among you. Um, let me cut to the chase here. Because so far, what, most of what I've shared this morning has been examples of miracles that were being done. Many by apostles, certainly not exclusively. Many as an apologetic, but not exclusively. I also want to quickly mention that there are many instances of non-apostles prophesying. We've been looking at signs and wonders in terms of healing and miracles. Uh, Prophecy itself and the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit. We see many, many instances of people operating in the prophetic who absolutely were not apostles. Healing wasn't the only miracle. Now, uh, we're, what I want to do, though, the reason I want to kind of hustle through this, because there's still a little bit we have to look at, is get to the doctrinal statements from those who were apostles and doing these miracles, and most, most importantly, from Jesus himself. In other words, we see the examples. Very, very clear to see that miracles continued to be done. It's very, very clear to see that miracles happened through the hands of people who were not apostles. But is there something, because we can look at that and say, well, uh, you know, it's kind of like when people say, uh, well, we need to, church, this is a ridiculous position, by the way, but it's a very, there are people who buy this. Church buildings are not scriptural, because in the book of Acts, they met house to house. Well, did they meet house to house in the book of Acts? Yes. Does it say in the book of Acts that unless you're meeting house to house, you're not, uh, you're not following the Spirit of God? Absolutely does. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. Why did they meet house to house instead of building church buildings? They would have torn the church buildings down. This the same time the church was growing in leaps and bounds, it was also being persecuted. Would not have been a wise investment of their offerings to build a church building because the Roman government would have torn it down. Anyway, uh, so, so also when we see these uh, miracles in the book, uh, in, in the New Testament... We could say, well, we see what's happening, but just because it happened, that's just descriptive. It's not speaking to us today. Is there something in the same areas, same books, same section of the Bible that not only tell us what happened, but tell us what should happen? And obviously, the answer is yes. We'll start in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Skip down to verse 28. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are, uh, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? What's so significant about that last passage is he is diff- we're, there are people who are utterly convinced 
that the miracle ministry was reserved for those with apostolic authority. And Paul says clearly that those are separate ministries. Some are apostles. Others have gifts of miracles. Others have gifts of healings. Clearly, you do not have to be an apostle to operate with the gifts of, gift of miracles and gifts of healings. He's differentiating between those and doing it very clearly. James chapter 5, beginning in 14. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, I shared, uh, it's probably been a couple of years on Wednesday night, I shared about how I was listening to a very well-known minister and I've always liked the guy because he tells great old, he makes, he does a great job preaching through the Old Testament. I think that's kind of where his strong suit is. He'll tell these stories, read these accounts, and he can make these characters come alive. But when he gets on the, ish, on the subject of the gifts of the Spirit, he's just very, very hard to listen to because he's not just wrong, he's egregiously wrong. And when he was reading this passage, teaching on this passage, he says, well, what we take away from this is this is only when we're praying for people who are sick as a result of sin. In other words, here's somebody who needs, what they really need is forgiveness. And so what we do is we pray for them, for their eyes to be open so that they can receive God's forgiveness, and then God heals them as a sign to confirm that he has forgiven them. That is not, that's not a clear reading of this scripture at all. I mean, you really got to do some, it's, it's convoluted. So why is the forgiveness thing in there? I'll tell you why. Do you remember, was it just last week we were talking about the paralytic? Do you remember the faith of his friends who had to lower him down through the roof? And Jesus looks at him in front of all these people, and what's the first thing he says? Your sins are forgiven. And the, the, the religious people in the crowd are like, What? Who's he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, oh, you think I'm just saying that because it's easy to say? What's well, easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? But just so you know I have the authority to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. And he does. Now, Jesus is moved with compassion. He heals this man. Why did he address the guy's sin? Because just like with you and me, we need something from God, whether it's a, an answer to any prayer. But let's just say, I need healed. I need a physical healing in my body. Maybe it's just something I've dealt with for a long time. Maybe it's a nuisance. Maybe it's a life-threatening disease, but we need healing. And what does the devil use more than anything else to keep us from being in faith for that healing? Guilt. Guilt. You don't deserve this healing. If you really believed, if you were really in faith, you wouldn't have disobeyed him. You wouldn't have missed him like this. You wouldn't have ignored this, blah, 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 blah. And so we think, I can't get it. So what's the first thing Jesus says is, that's under the blood. You're forgiven. You're, sin, you're right. Sin does keep you from receiving healing. But your sins are forgiven. Now receive your healing. This is the same thing James is saying. All right? Most importantly, these next two. Mark 16, beginning in verse 15. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink any, anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now, I know. 
your Bible probably has some brackets over the last, uh, like from verse 9 on, and there'll be a little note at the bottom of the page that says, these verses not included in some of the oldest manuscripts. Three of the oldest manuscripts do not include that passage. Practically every other, I'm talking old manuscripts. This isn't like this. When you see that footnote, don't take away from that, well, that's a very recent edition. It's not. Of the, of the of collection of the oldest manuscripts we have, almost all of them have that, that passage in there. The people who argue that that wasn't in, in the autograph, the original written by Mark, are not, it's really important to understand this. They might be saying this wasn't in his original writing, but that they are not saying that Jesus didn't say this. They might be saying, well, this was added later for clarification. This was a section that somebody else wrote to finish because otherwise it ends too abruptly. But they're not saying it's doctrinally incorrect. The reason people like to focus on the fact that that's not in the original, do you know why the number one reason is? Because of tongues. Well, if Jesus himself said they'll speak with tongues, that's kind of a hard one. So, you know what? Let's really focus on the fact that we found three manuscripts that don't have this in there. All right? But anyway, I'd rather focus on the healing and the miracles here, right? John chapter 14. This is Jesus speaking again, beginning in verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Who's he talking to? Or who's he talking about? He who believes in me. Those who believe, not apostles, believers. What are they going to do? The works that he did. What did he do? He did healings. He did miracles. What can we do to cultivate an atmosphere for the miraculous, for healings? We can believe. Now let me back up here real quick and address something that Jesus said here. You've probably heard me say this before too. I don't care. Man, everything at Rama I heard this week, especially everything I heard from the Hagans, I've heard 20 times. And one thing I pulled away from those meetings was, I can hear it 20 more times. So I keep saying I'm going to stop apologizing for saying something that you've heard me say before, but I, I really didn't going to stop apologizing for that. You need to hear it again and again and again. When Jesus said this, those who believe me, works that I do, they will do also, and greater works than these. When you look up commentary on this, the vast majority of the discussion and I'm talking not, not just ancient commentary, people who want to take this stuff on. What they talk about is how can we possibly do greater works than Jesus? Jesus healed multitudes. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus walked on water. Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. How can we, what greater miracles, what greater works could he, he possibly have been talking about? Rather than answer that question, I want to focus on the first part of what he said. He didn't just, he didn't say, well, that would be a, it's a worthy discussion anyway. And if he'd said, those who believe, they'll do greater works than I did because I go to my father. But he didn't say that, did he? He said, the works that I do, they will do also and greater works than these. That's a harder pill for a lot of people to swallow than just the greater works. Because we can say, well, the greater works is, 
Uh, we can preach to millions of people at a time thanks to communication. We get to actually lay hands on people and have them receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We can preach to people just preaching the Word of God and see them born again. Holy Spirit made all this possible. And because we're doing this as the body of Christ, billions of people can be ministering at once through the same Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was ministering through, right? Or the Holy, the Holy Spirit that was ministering through Christ. But, so we can, we can sort of tackle the greater. Sometimes some people can tackle that much more easily than they can tackle the works that I do. Try to get around that. Jesus said, you'll do those works too. So let's do them, right? I'm beginning to wrap this up. Not close enough for praise and worship team to come up, but we are getting there. Are you still with me? All right. Let me, let me, let me uh, share something with you that I, that I heard at Rama more than once this week. I'd like a louder amen than that. Okay. Are you still with me? Okay. It's a good Rama church. <laughs> what can we do to cult- cultivate an atmosphere for the miraculous? Uh, my newsletter article which is coming out this week. I'll just kind of give you the preview. Again, I'm not convinced that a lot of you read it anyway, and this is too important for you to miss, so I'm going to share kind of uh, a central concept from it, which is this, the idea of the prayer of faith. Three quick examples, uh, and you can go home and look these up. I'm going to read the first one to you, maybe the second one too. Uh, three quick examples, though. In Mark 11:23. Ever heard of that passage before? Mark eleven twenty three and 24, Jesus said, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Uh, what does the saying have to do with the praying? This is a great example of faith when Jesus says, if you say unto this mountain, You'll have whatever you say if you're in faith, if you believe God. And then says, therefore, whatever you ask for when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you'll have them. Now, prayer, believe that I receive it. Prayer sounds to me like I'm asking for something. I'm going to God and saying, God, will you please do this? And then I believe. I believe that the answer is yes. But he says, therefore. But right before that, he's not giving an example of talking to God at all, is he? Who are we talking to? The mountain. The problem, the obstacle. Hang on to that thought. In James chapter 5, uh, verse 17, James writes, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Praise worship team, you can be coming on up here now. But if you go back and read the story of Elijah, and you read about the drought, one thing you will not see is where did Elijah pray? We do not see, because what James seems to be indicating is that Elijah goes to God and says, Lord, I believe you're leading me to ask for this. So in faith, I'm asking you to withhold the rain until I asked for the rain. That's what it looks like in James. You know what Elijah did? He went to the king and he said, Behold, this land will not see any rain or dew except at my word. He didn't pray to God. He declared it. 
to the king. He declared it apparently to the atmosphere. Same thing when it rained again. He didn't pray for rain. He just declared there's rain coming. I hear the sound. Finally, final example that I'm going to share this morning anyway, is Joshua at Gibeon. You remember he entered into this ill-advised treaty with the Gibeonites when they were going into the land of promise. He was kind of tricked into believing that these guys were going to be their allies. God said, shame on you. You should have checked with me first. These are part of the people I wanted you to drive out of the land. But Joshua was going to honor his uh, treaty. And here came uh, the Amorites and some others who were attacking them. The Gibeonites say, oh, help us. And so Joshua, I mean, Lord works a great victory. And they're, they're, they're killing the Amorites. They're protecting the Gibeonites. But they're running out of daylight. It's like the battle's going well. And it says that Joshua spoke to the Lord. But it doesn't tell us his prayer. It says he spoke to the Lord and said in the sight of the children of Israel... Sun and moon stand still. And the sun stood still. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't a prayer before that. But the only prayer we see is Joshua speaking to the sun. The only prayer we see is Elijah speaking to the king and to the atmosphere. The only prayer uh, that we see when Jesus is talking about believing and receiving is speaking to the mountain. Stand up with me as we really wrap this up while I break this down for you. Is there something we can do to create an atmosphere, to cultivate an atmosphere for the miraculous? Not just for next week, but in our congregation, in our lives, but certainly with an eye toward next week. Is there something we can do that will put us in a place of legitimate expectation. And I would say it's this. Believe and speak. Be it unto you according to your faith. If you've come in here with a need, even a desperate need, and God, your loving Father, as the perfect loving Father, wants to see you healed, wants to see you delivered, wants to see you overcome this mountain, whatever it was. He wants it more than you do. Just like a good parent wants good things for their kids, even more than the kids want. And you want this, and you say, oh, man, he's God. Surely he can do this. Oh, please, 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 please. That's one thing. Another attitude could be, well, I don't know what I think about this Kevin and Annie Durant stuff. I'm not sure what I believe about this miracle stuff, but I guess... I'll show up and see what God can do. Be it unto you according to your faith. But if you come in here saying, thank you, God, that you have orchestrated this, that you are bringing in uh, this precious couple who served you faithfully for decades now and who you have been pouring out your spirit through, thank you, Lord, for bringing them to living word, and I'm just prepared to receive everything you have for me. And I speak to this body, I speak to this mountain, I speak to this need, and I command you to be gone in Jesus' name. I command you to be well, I command you to be whole, and I thank you, Lord, for every way you're going to manifest your miraculous power uh, when Kevin and Annie are here next week. Be it unto you according to your faith. You don't have to wait a week. If you're in a point of this mountain is something that needs dealt with now, just don't exercise your faith by falling to your knees and crying and begging God for something. Because it's not desperation that moves God. 
It's faith. It's faith. Faith speaks and faith thanks God for what he has done, for what he has said he has done, even before we see it with our eyes. Because we know if God said it, it is as good as done in our lives. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.